Welcome back, students. We're going to talk about the sphere of Mercury in Dante's Paradiso, part two. Those cantos five through seven today. We'll have a brief touching then on um, the sphere of Venus, the third sphere, the sphere of love or charity marred by lust. I'll talk a little bit, not about Foco de Marseille yet, but about Rahab, and then tie a few um, moments from the moon, Mercury, and Venus together in order to start elucidating for you one of the major themes of Dante, which is you cannot trust that which you see, or your senses are not that which gives you access to the truth or the divine light. It is, in fact, your intellect, which is very similar to the major theme of the Odyssey, which we laid out in the Odyssey last year, which is that nothing is as it seems. And we recall that this is actually literally borne out in the Polyphemus uh, episode, where Polyphemus does not have the foresight to understand that Dante may hear, hurt him. And then he does not have the ability to understand that Dante, though he cannot see him once blind, might be underneath a, a sheet, suggesting that that which you see with your eyes represents very little of that which actually is. And we will finish the lecture today with that. But in, before that, Dante has to go for one of the biggest arguments that exists, and certainly one of the biggest arguments that would have existed during the Middle Ages, and it is, why would the Incarnation have happened? Which is, why would a god, especially a supreme god, deign to become a human, doomed to die, and not only doomed to die, but doomed to be betrayed by his own people? His own people, whether those be the Jewish people, he was a <coughs> rabbi, whether those be the Romans. I don't recall whether he was a Roman citizen, but I think he must have since he was crucified, and a crucifixion was an execution that was reserved for Romans. I believe that's uh, how Peter died too, though upside down, upside down, which is pretty gnarly. Some of those ancient ways to die, very, very interesting if you ever want to study them. Well, in any case, why would somebody, why would even a human subject himself to that? Odysseus had that question from Calypso. Adam and Eve sort of had that question, um, though they knew not what suffering was, at least so Dante thinks. And so let's give it a look. Let's give it a look. So the quote we look at in Canto 7, lines 55 to 57, is this. You say, I understand what I hear, but it is hidden from me why God willed only this means for our redemption. So he is mentioning that why is it that after man killed God in the figure of Jesus, that, or rather, why is it after the fall of Adam that man could not restore himself from this post-Lapsarian fallen state back to his initial state of grace or purity? Why can't man just forgive himself, is that question. Apparently, according to Dante, there has to be a far more complex process to forgiveness than simply, uh, uh, I don't know, saying the words. And so he makes the claim here that God came down to this world, became incarnated in a human body, was then killed unjustly by humans, so that he could commit the ultimate act of charity, which is to forgive somebody for doing something utterly what? Unforgivable. It is as if, and I want you to think about that reasoning. How is it that man is going to be raised up to purity again through doing something that he could not forgive himself for? Is there an answer? 
if you've done something unforgivable, by definition, it is what? Unforgivable. It's unforgivable by you as a human. But in Dante's world, what creature or what thing, not creature technically, it would be creator, what being beyond human might be able to forgive a human, even for doing something unforgivable, even for doing something unforgivable to it itself? That seems to be the idea. And tell me this, students, of all the virtues we know, especially thinking of the holy virtues, which one would you need to use to give somebody that, something that they do not deserve at all after they have done something unforgiven to you? It would be charity or love. It would be ultimate charity because you would be giving somebody less worthy than you something good that helps them instead of giving them something, instead of punishing them in a way that they totally deserve. And so... That makes one wonder, why? Why? Why would you do this? And well, let's see. For it was more generous, generous as in giving, in God to give himself, to make man able to raise himself again than if he had merely remitted the sin. That's a very important tercet right there lines 115 to 117 because there it shows that the action of grace is get or the ability to redeem oneself is given to men by god god does not simply forgive and redeem man it is as if in this act of charity something is given to man to aspire towards if this divine being has acted so charitably and so mercifully towards these creatures that it could well destroy. And if you ever read the Old Testament, you see this sort of thing happen, Noah's flood. And then, of course, you've also seen this happen in the Odyssey, right? When the children of a god work against the god's will, he then places a mountain on top of them. Does anybody recall which people that was? Yes. The Phaeacians. And so we know in the Greco-Roman tradition mess with your godfather what happens to you death met and that happens often you mess with the zinnia death zeus will come after you 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 claim that you are beyond the gods as Isaiah the lesser after a god saves you poseidon death the old testament is much the same you become very unjust in sodom and gomorrah death you you live in noah's time there's going to be a flood death but here opposite life Opposite from what we would expect. Very bizarre. And so, let's go through the reasoning here as it's outlined. Therefore, God could have given man forgiveness, but he died rather to give man the ability to redeem himself. Very interesting. Almost as if the claim Dante is making is that the divine as an abstract concept beyond man dies into man. As if in order for the divine to be, he must be embodied by man through grace. Very interesting. And so, B, and because God's nature is charity, in fact, that's part of his nature as part of the triune or trinitarian holy virtues, of which there are three, of course, though there is one full set of them, um, because God's nature is charity, 
God may then give the ultimate charity, which is forgiveness to man for attempting to be more than God. That is, of course, the original sin of Adam in trying to know all things, uh, which created suffering in the world. Because if you know all things, what thing do you know as a human, which is your least favorite thing about being a human? Who knows? Who knows? You're all very young and have just come to life. But at some point, what will happen to all of us, of course? We will die. And so if you learn knowledge of all things as a human, do you learn that you are a god? Or do you learn that you are very much a mortal? A mortal, that's right. You learn about your own death the more that you learn. And that's very interesting. And so uh, this creature, Adam, attempted to learn more. It reduced him down to size. He sees he's no god. He's a mortal, but with a very divine ability to see. And um, let's see, which is forgiveness to man for A, attempting to be more than a god, and then B, for killing a creature or killing a person, killing a, a divine being. All right, therefore, the fall of man allows for the ultimate charity by God, which gives man second life by giving him a new ultimate ideal towards which to strive. I want you to think about this. This is the reasoning Dante is giving. If a god is unwilling to forgive all men for the ultimate sin that a human could possibly commit against anything by being ultimately unjust against the ultimately beneficent or charitable being, and a god can forgive man for that, what is it that humans are supposed to be able to forgive each other for? Is there anything by this reasoning that a human could do that is totally unforgivable by other humans, given what came here? And the answer obviously is what? No. And you might say, that sounds crazy. And I would say, well, think about the 20th century, students. The Nazis killed six million of their people. The Nazis were a political party that took over Germany. Does Germany still exist? Yes, in fact, we gave them loans after World War II. Well, Japan, Japan, surprise attacked Pearl Harbor on us when we had no idea that that was going to happen. And then we deployed two nuclear weapons against them. We could have destroyed everything there. And we did do something that some people think is very terrible, some people think is necessary. It depends on sort of what reasoning you accept. That said, we defeated the Japanese. They surrendered. Did we wipe them off the map? No, we gave them loans too. In fact, now, many of our cars and often our electronic technology, Sony, Toyota, um, uh, Honda, all of these giant names come from Japan. We have become rich because of our forgiveness of them. The Russians, when they were the Soviet Union, were for 50 years our enemies. Supposedly killed 60 million of their own people during that time. Does Russia still exist? So one thing I might encourage you to think about is, why is it that we as a people didn't attempt genocide against these people because of what they had done? Which I know seems like a harsh question, but it is a logical question. Once the dog bites the hand, you have many decisions ahead of you. You can punish the dog, you can put the dog down, or you can reform the dog. 
And what we seem to have realized in the West, which is in no way unrelated to this reasoning, is that when you treat those who have fallen even in terrible ways with respect and you help them, that they help to make you rich. And that is the great secret of our people. The people that we defeat, we then help to get back on their feet, and then their resources, with the, which they then produce, we can then consume, which makes us what? It makes us richer. It is almost as if the idea of forgiveness is the idea by which humans become richer, which is interesting because what is the virtue that lies behind forgiveness? Charity. <laughs> very good, very good. Thus, God gives man the ability to redeem or save himself by sacrificing his son slash giving man the logos to be used freely, which means if Dante's reasoning is that Jesus is in some way a representation of the mind of man which has been given to man to use as he pleases, then the ultimate use of the man, the mind would be to be charitable to those around you, forgive them their faults, so that you can become as strong and rich as possible as a group. Hmm. That does not sound like dumb reasoning, even if at some point it is incorrect. I haven't been able to I haven't been able to really knock this reasoning. Yeah, you might not take the same assumptions as he does, but give him what he has. He does a great job. All right, and here is the full quote from 797 to 118. Listen closely and see if you hear what was just said and laid out. Man could not within his limits ever atone, since he could not descend with obedient humility afterwards. So man can't, at least according to this first tercet, atone by himself. As far as in his disobedience he early intended to rise up, so apparently he wanted to be as much as a god, sort of like the giants, who, who uh, Ephialtes and Otis, uh, who eventually are put down in hell in circle eight, unfortunately. Therefore it was left to God to restore man to the fullness of life. I say with one, or else with both his ways. So there was some way that, he, that this god went about redeeming man, like bringing him up from a state of fallenness. That means getting him out of trouble, getting him out of trouble. But because of work, is the more pleasing to the workman, the more expresses the goodness of the heart from which it issues. I think that's a good quote. You like the things you make which are better. Everybody know that feeling? You hate the things you make and they're not very good. You crumple up the paper, you throw it in the trash can, you say, it's trash. Yes. The divine goodness that stamps the world was happy to proceed by all its ways to raise you up again. Not between the last night and the first day has there been or will there be so high and so magnificent a going forth by either way. For God was more liberal, more charitable, in giving himself in order to make mankind sufficient to raise itself up than if he had simply forgiven. And all other ways fell short of justice if the Son of God had not come over himself to become flesh. The idea is this. The idea is this. It's in this penultimate tercet here. For God was more liberal in giving himself in order to make mankind sufficient to raise itself up than if he had simply forgiven. How is it that he gives man the ability to raise himself up? Well, in dying, he gives the ideal of ultimate charity to man. When you have an ideal, what do you do in order to bring yourself closer to it with your life? What is the word we use? It's an S word. Mm. You strive towards an ideal. So in giving an ideal, 
Who is it that actually ends up doing the work if it is God who gives the ideal? Who must do the actual work? The humans, right? Right, and he even says, because a work is the more pleasing to the workman, the more it expresses the goodness of the heart from which it issues. The reason why... The reason this is such a powerful argument is that who brings charity into this world actually by its account? And where does all charity in the world therefore come from? The capacity for charity came from God. But where does the actuality of it come from by Dante's reasoning here? It comes from man. It comes from man. That's right. That's right. And so if there is going to be charity and love in this world, so say the Beatles... Where is it going to come from? All of you. All of you. That's right. That's right. All right. Dante then goes on to consider. You don't need to write this down because this is more of a, uh, I would say this is a scholastic point here. He then goes on to consider why it is that other substances like fire, earth, water, air, and those made of them corrupt and do not remain eternal like angels and celestial substances. If the elements like angels were created perfect, they would never corrupt. But elements are compounds of form, this is Aristotelian, and matter. Thus, the elements like a human body may fall apart. And so this is uh, his question of, he answers here, is the soul immortal? Answer, yes. But is the composite being of human immortal? Answer, no. Because a human is made of matter and form. The soul is the form. It stays forever. But the composite is part matter, which becomes corruptible. So, by Dante's reasoning, if you are a human, what will certainly happen to you? You will corrupt and die. You will corrupt and die. And that does not seem to be untrue. Um, and that's in 7, 136 to 141. All right. Venus. I'm just going to touch on this very quickly, just two minutes or so. So, Venus is Cantos 8 and 9. And we meet a couple of interesting people. We meet Foco de Marseille. We meet Rahab. And we will talk a little bit about love slightly marred by lust. Canto 8 begins with an ascent to the third sphere of Venus. We have learned the lesson from the second sphere, and we immediately, or rather, Beatrice immediately becomes more beautiful in that she is enriched with more divine light, because she is, of course, the symbol for the mind illuminated by the light of truth, whereas Virgil is the symbol of the mind unilluminated by the light of truth. Recall, he holds the light behind himself, so says Statius, that helps those behind him, but not himself. He was not guided himself by the light of the illuminated intellect, existing um, about 20 years before the time of Christ. And so, we have here a brief description of Venus with her Homeric epithet, the Cyprian. Recall that Cypria was one of her, uh, and she was called the Cyprian in the Odyssey. Cypria is one of her places. It may have also been in the Iliad she's called that. She also has her mother Dione, which was a feminine version of the name for Zeus, who was her mother in Book 5 of the Iliad, who, after she is stabbed by Diomedes, comforts her a little bit and says, oh, honey, honey, it's okay, and tells her about stories of Hades and Hera having themselves been stabbed by Heracles with arrows. And it talks a little bit about her son, Cupid. In fact, the word cupidity, which means lustful, actually comes from his name, indicating that the son of love is lust, as in 
it is a small derivation from it. Very interesting. As if the vice comes from the virtue, as if it is a corruption of the virtue. And also, of course, since these are three people within one family, it is sort of a proto-symbol of the Trinity. And so, last thing we're going to touch on today. I just want to mention Rahab and tie some concepts together for you. We are reading through the Paradiso. It is a very, very, very difficult work of literature. It is one of the most difficult works. In fact, it is one of the most difficult ones. You always know what a difficult work of literature or what a great work of literature is precisely by how many people know its name and want to read it and how that is inversely proportional to those who have actually read it. And so most people you'll meet will know about Dante and the Divine Comedy. Almost no people you meet will have read the Paradiso. At best, they probably know a little bit about the Inferno. Maybe they know that there was like a devil down there or something like that. You knew much more. And so, Rahab and how human sight is blind. Let's really see what it is Dante's working towards here. Let's see if we can see it even before we finish the third sphere. That would be very impressive. She was a prostitute in Jericho. Now, prostitute, that is a low-status sort of job. If one of us were to say that we wanted, at a career counseling session, to become a prostitute, probably our counselor would look at us with some degree of horror and counsel us against that sort of profession, not the least, not, uh, notwithstanding the fact that it's obviously illegal at this point in time. So she's the sort of person that would be looked up to or looked down on. Looked down on, of course. Very good. And so she helped this conqueror named Joshua get these spies. This sounds very much like the that she's a bit like a Helen with Odysseus and Diomedes letting them into the city, that she helped Joshua's spies into this place called Jericho, which would eventually fall. And now she seems a bit traitorous. She seems a bit lascivious. But, 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 Dante gives us one additional piece of information about her that is a humongous piece of information. As we know, according to Dante's reasoning, that when Jesus died on Good Friday and then went... He then went down to hell and harrowed it on Saturday and then reascended on Sunday, which is why Easter is on Sunday and Good Friday, is, or it is on Friday, obviously. During that harrowing, he led many of the Hebrew patriarchs who had been in hell because heaven had been closed since the time of Adam until his coming out of hell and into heaven. And so a big question someone might have is this. Who was the very first person? who got led into heaven. And there are a lot of people that got led, including Adam, the first man, which suggests also Eve. The first person to be led into heaven, according to Dante here, was Rahab the prostitute. And so we all sort of look at that and we're shocked, we gasp. Say, what? A prostitute? Why her? But then we start to think. Think about how often our senses have deceived us in the Paradiso. The dark spots on the moon. We looked at the moon, looked like there was darkness, found out actually there are different degrees of brightness when we looked closer. We looked at the moon, we thought it was all one, a unity. But when we looked closer, we saw it was actually made up of many tiny, perfect little parts. We looked at how you can change a vow, and we thought that was a simple thing to do. But in fact, we find out that a vow is made of two parts, the agreement and the thing itself. And that if you want to change the thing itself, it's no simple matter to change it. You cannot give less than you originally offered. You must give more. Do you determine that with your eyes 
or with your mind? Mind. It's almost like with Rahab, if we were just to judge her based on her job, would we judge well of her or poorly of her? And yet, who judged highest of her in this account? God. Which means, who's wrong? We are. Which means, who's been wrong all along about so many things? We have, because we don't look closely enough at almost anything that exists around us. What Dante seems to be saying, just like what Homer was saying through the Odyssey and Odysseus, is everything around you is far more complex and interconnected than you have any idea about. And so your immediate ideas about things are most likely completely right or very, very wrong. Very, very wrong. And I'll extend Dante's reasoning. Something we know now due to contemporary science is that the most complicated thing in the universe that we have found is not a planet, is not a star, but is a what? A human. Because you have the most complicated piece of circuitry within you that exists, which is called a, do you know what it is? It's a brain, a human brain. And so, what is it that Dante is telling you you think you understand, but you have almost no understanding of. Yourself. Humans. Because you're so complicated, how could you possibly understand yourself just by looking at you? And so Dante's idea may be that the only way you understand a human is not by their looks, their language, what they say are their beliefs, but by their effects by their actions, by that which they produce. In fact, there's a very famous biblical quote that is, know me by my fruits. As if you are a tree that produces fruits. And they can either be sour, or they can be ripe. And, well, I think that's a very beautiful argument. Because that means that when you think you know someone, do you really? And even when you think you really know yourself, is there still probably more to learn? <clears throat> Yes, and is there still more to learn? This is a very scientific claim, I think, because even if we know more than we've ever known, what also do we definitely know? That we don't know, that we know almost nothing at all. That's right. That there's always infinite more quantities of information to learn, which means if we lived in a world where there was more to learn than ever before, would that add more meaning or less meaning to our lives as information gatherers, as information processors? There would be more, because more information exists and more tools exist to acquire it than ever before. And so this should be, as the present time, the most meaningful time, by Dante's reasoning, ever in existence. And so welcome. It's good to be here with you all. All right, we'll move on through Venus probably tomorrow. <laughs>